Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hello, dear listeners. Hello, it's good to be here. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. We are delighted to be with you and to be answering your questions. We together, Wendy and I, were going through the questions today, and we think we have some really good ones. Yeah. But you know, we like to talk about something first before we jump into our questions. And what's on my mind right now is a movie that I just saw the other day. Oh, yes. Finally. I saw the end. There's a little backstory here. Okay. This movie came out 10 years ago. It's called Gran Torino. It's named after a car. And I saw it on an airplane, and the airplane was coming in for a landing, and the movie turned off right before the climax. So, oh, no. And for whatever reason, life, I don't know, I just didn't didn't watch it again until just this past weekend. Uh-huh. So was it a while ago that you saw the beginning of it? The majority yeah, of the majority. Yeah, I saw, I saw like nine-tenths of the movie on an airplane in 2009. Oh, so you saw it when ago. it came out. Yeah, okay. soon after, you know, when it's, when it's released on airplanes. Okay. But I've been waiting to see the end, and I've read that the ending is excellent, but, you know, I've, I've been holding off on knowing what the ending is uh, because I wanted to see it, but life got in the way, and it took me 10 years to finally watch the end of this movie. <laughs> and the point of the story is, you should see this movie. It's really good. Clint Eastwood is excellent. Uh, he's an old crotchety jerk of a guy that you really kind of come to love because you see that soft spot underneath there, and he's dealing with gang wars and so it's a violent movie. I would not recommend this for younger viewers, but it's it's uh, and it's salty in certain places. But he takes this this young Asian boy under his wings and is really. In his own kind of gruff way, he's very tender with them, and he shows them, uh, you know, how to how to live a life without going down the road of the gangs and, mm. and living a a violent life. And he helps him get a job at a construction site, and but then there's the showdown at the end, and uh, yeah, the, the, I won't give it away, but the 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 Christ-like ending. These are the kind of movies that you wait for. You have to get through lots of. I'm a movie watcher, and, and yeah. I often watch duds. And you know, Wendy, when I yeah, I will complain about some dud movie. I just spent right. two hours of my life watching. But I know that that's part of the being a movie watcher. You got to sit through some duds to get through some gems. And yeah, seeing Gran Torino finally made me think. Yeah, I'll, I'll take the duds to get to a, a uh, good one like this. Oh, I bet a lot of our listeners also appreciate that movie, and others are just grateful for the recommendation to so check it out. Watch it, and if you have any thoughts about it and want to send them in to me, I'd be happy to hear your reflections. Okay, I'll send mine through the podcast when I watch when it. You- okay. <laughs> <laughs> or should I just tell you directly? You can tell me directly. Okay, okay, that's what I'll do. Well, can I you share? Know, we, we sleep in the same bed. Uh, yes, I guess. And, I, and we often have good conversations that's right. about that things. That would be a good time. While we're if I watch it, I'll, I'll bring it up at that uh, okay, time. Good. Okay. <laughs> I don't sleep in the same bed with any of our podcasts. Listeners. So true. Thank you. I am so. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> well, let me give you a question from a listener named Grace. Hello, Grace. Why is the church always referred to as a she? Obviously, we learn this from Jesus, who will himself marry his bride, the church. But there must be reasoning beyond this. 
For instance, a ship is also referred to as a female. Does referring to the church as a she somehow coincide with a woman's womb? And like a ship, the womb is a safe dwelling place, or am I making this all up? No, you're not making this all up. And I love, I love that Grace connected this with the fact that we call other things she and we call other things he. There's a great little reflection by Peter Kraft. And if anyone's out there familiar with the Humanum videos, mm-hmm. uh, just go to YouTube and type in Humanum. H-U-M-A-N-U-M, right? That's Humanum. That's correct. Okay. And uh, Peter Kraft in one of those episodes, I, I can't, we'll, we'll find it and put the link in the show notes, but uh, he has this really insightful reflection about how masculine and feminine, masculinity and femininity is ascribed to things in, in every language, uh, you know, like a table is in Spanish, I'm not even sure if it's a he or she, a table. I'm going to guess it's a she, but Spanish-speaking people can correct me. But, but in English, we don't do that. Mm-hmm. But in, in other, almost every other language, there's this, you know, the pronouns. The, yeah, and the, nouns or, have gender. Excuse me, nouns have gender. That's what right. I'm trying to say. Nouns have gender. In English, we miss, that, we miss out on that. But nonetheless, in English, nonetheless, we will call, as she gives the example, a ship a she. Mm-hmm. And some people might think, and she's even doubting, is this all arbitrary? Do mm-hmm. we just make this up? Well, if, as the modern world says, masculinity and femininity are themselves culturally conditioned and determined phenomena, then yeah, we're just making this stuff up. If it's just arbitrary assignment, then none of it really means anything. Mm-hmm. But she herself points out, no, 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 there's something about a ship. Mm-hmm. There's a reason we call it a she. Mm-hmm. And the ship is something of a womb, a safe place, right? Right. This is not meaningless. This is profoundly meaningful. And to get to the meaning of calling the church she, we have to reflect first on the very purpose and meaning of the gender difference. Mm. What is the gender difference fundamentally? And and we can look at the natural level and we can look at the supernatural level because grace builds on nature. So, at the most natural level, I mean, all you have to do is talk to a dog breeder to get to the most natural meaning of the sexual difference. It's to reproduce the species at the most natural level. Mm -hmm. And the very word gender shares the same root as words like generous, generate, progeny, genealogy. We've talked about this before, I'm sure on previous episodes of the podcast. And that Greek root gen means to produce, to give birth to, to beget. Gender, properly understood in the root of the word, it means the manner in which you generate new life. And you need a male and a female to generate new life. That's what determines your gender, the manner in which you generate new life. Mm -hmm. And that is determined by another gen word, your genitals. Mm -hmm. The female genitals produce the eggs, the male genitals produce the sperm. And together, when sperm and egg meet, you have the next generation. Mm -hmm. This is the fundamental meaning of the gender difference. That's on the natural level. But when we talk about the church, we have a supernatural mystery. But recall this key line from Ephesians chapter 5, which John Paul II says 
is a summa or a summary of everything God wants to tell us about who he is, who we are, why we're here, how we are to live, what our ultimate destiny is, and what it's all about, Alfie. It's uh, all <laughs> That's pretty exciting. It's all there in this in these two verses, okay. Ephesians 5:31 to 32. Okay. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. So when we look at how grace builds on nature, we discover the supernatural meaning of gender is to reveal the very mystery of God's relationship with us. The very purpose in the divine order, the ultimate purpose of the sexual difference. It's not just to produce the next generation. That's the natural reason, and none of that's erased, but it's built on, and we discover the meaning of masculinity and femininity and the union of the two and the generation of new life. It's all a great mystery. It's a sign that reveals something infinite, something eternal. We could summarize the whole Christian mystery with these five words. God wants to marry us. This is the covenant God wants to establish with his people. But there's more to the mystery. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage, that whole generation mystery, that mystery of generation. Mm -hmm. God wants to fill his bride with eternal life. This is why the church is the bride. This is why God in relation to us is always the bridegroom. This is love, scripture says, not that we first love God, but that he first loved us. And something of this mystery is written right in the mystery of the two becoming one flesh, of the gender difference and the whole mystery of the generation of life. It's the man who gives the seed. It's the woman who receives the seed, mm -hmm. conceives the new life within her. This is love. Not that we first love God. God first loved us. He is the one who grants this gift of life. He is the one who, who initiates this gift of love. So I often say all we can really say to God is I love you too. Mm -hmm. His love always comes first. And we see something here written right into the anatomy of the gender difference and the meaning of the gender difference, which is a call to life-giving, holy communion. We see a sacrament of the way God loves us. If we were to flip it around, if we were to say, God is now the bride and humanity is the bridegroom. The whole mystery is now different. We are, we are confusing the creator and the creature. Now, let me also say this. None of this is to say that men are divine and women are not, but rather <laughs> there is an- Wait, can you just say that again? So yes. it's not true. When let's, you just, <laughs> let's just underscore this. None of this is to say men are divine and women are not. Oh, good. Phew. We are both equally- creatures. Okay. And in fact, if we really want to understand what it means to be a creature, whether you're male or female, we have to look to the feminine mystery. And this is the point. This is why the church is a she. John Paul II says, woman is the model and archetype of the whole human race. Mm. Woman reveals to all of us what it means to be human, because to be human means to open to receive divine love 
conceive divine love and bear it forth. This is the theology of a woman's body, to open to receive this divine gift. Uh, in, in Genesis, Eve says, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And John Paul says that summarizes in its fullness the mystery of human generation. Eve knows that this gift she has received comes through her husband, but ultimately from the Lord. And in the spousal analogy, the husband is a symbol of Christ. The wife is a symbol of the church. This is why the church is a she. Now, I will make this point, and it's also very important that John Paul II says, the giving and receiving of the gift interpenetrate so much so that the giving itself becomes a receiving and the receiving itself becomes a giving. If we don't make that important observation, we could fall pretty quickly into Aristotle's half-truth that led to a serious error in our thinking that the male is the active principle and the female is the passive principle. Mm. There's a certain truth there, but it's not its not right because that just makes the woman feel like a, a blob that's mm. acted upon, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. John Paul says it very, very well. The giving and receiving of the gift interpenetrate so much so that the man in giving that seed also receives the gift of the woman and the woman in receiving the gift of the man also becomes a gift to the man. The giving and receiving interpenetrate. And we can also apply this to the relationship between God and us. I, I was just thinking that. Yeah. That, yes, you can say that important distinction in marriage, but it, it is really true in our relationship with the Lord. And maybe for those of us who either aren't married or aren't in the best of marriage relationships, to take a step back and look at it in terms of our faith and our relationship with the Lord could could help us to really yes. take this in deeper, that the fact that the Lord gives Himself to us is a receiving of us as a precious yes. one to whom He can give Himself, and that we would receive Him is the way we give ourselves exactly. to Him. I don't know if I'm getting no, all you're, of that, you're, but, that, you're, but that you're part putting of your finger it right on it. was in my heart as you were speaking. This giving and receiving with the Lord, this... Mm -hmm interpenetration of giving and receiving right. with the Lord is brought to fulfillment in the Eucharist. Mm. When, when Christ says to us, this is my body given up for you, and we say, amen, mm -hmm. we are meant to be taking him into ourselves, but not merely receiving him, but also giving ourselves to him. Right, right. And he's not merely giving himself to us, he's also open to receiving the gift of ourselves that we make to Him. But nonetheless, it doesn't erase the difference between the bridegroom and the bride because there is that initiation of the gift, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that line, this is love, not that we first love God, but that He first loved us, this is critical to maintaining the proper order between the Creator and the creature. And I'll close my thoughts here, and if you want to add anything else, please do, Wendy. Mm -hmm. But I'm reminded of something one of my professors said, Stanislaw Griegel. He was a close friend of St. John Paul II's, and he said, I think it's a keen observation, when we fail to live the sexual difference rightly, 
that distinguishes us as male and female and calls us to communion, the bad fruit of that is that we fail to understand the proper relationship between the creator and the creature and fail to recognize the call to life-giving communion with him. And that's the end goal of all this attack on gender in the modern world. Behind it is an evil force uh, personified in a fallen angel who does not want us to enter this holy communion of life-giving love with our creator. And so he attacks the natural reality of gender to confuse the supernatural Mm. call to communion between God and us. I'll just say one final thing, and it's this. None of this imagery means that God himself is sexual. God is pure spirit, the catechism says, in which there is no place for the difference of the sexes. But nonetheless, our sexuality as male and female, the perfections of our sexuality as male and female, say something profound and meaningful about our relationship with God and his with us. He stamped right into our bodies an image of his love for us. And that's why the enemy's after it. Amen. Wow, Grace, that was kind of a little thing that maybe puzzling over, getting little insights, and, and it ended up leading to a lot of helpful things being shared. So thanks for your awesome question. Thank you, Grace. Hope that helps you. The next question is from Kate. Kate asks, what is this upheaval I keep hearing about at the John Paul II Institute in Rome? It's hard to trust news sources these days. So I wanted to know your thoughts on this. Yes. This has been a question that has come in from various podcast listeners. And if you're not familiar No need to necessarily trouble you with all the details, but what I can do is we will post in the show notes for those who are interested an interview with the person I was just quoting, a former professor of mine, Stanislaw Griegel. And I think he summarizes very well and insightfully and in a trustworthy way some of this controversy surrounding what's going on with the John Paul II Institute in Rome. It's of great interest to me because I'm a a proud graduate of the John Paul II Institute. I didn't study at the Rome branch. I studied at the Washington, D.C. branch. But obviously, this this touches very intimately on my life, and uh, so, therefore, it's... Your work. And my work, obviously, yes. Uh, John Paul II started the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family in the early 80s. 82 was when he founded it, but he was driving into St. Peter's Square on May 13th, 1981, to announce the establishment of the Institute and was gunned down before he could do so. That was the day of the assassination attempt. Mm. And this is of great significance. The purpose of the John Paul II Institute was precisely to further John Paul II's vision of the human person, specifically as articulated in his theology of the body, and to, to help the church receive that teaching, to train others in it, to then pass it along, but has been under violent spiritual attack ever since it started. Mm. And in the early 80s, after he recovered, obviously, from the assassination attempt, he then put the John Paul II Institute under the protection of Our Lady of Fatima because he was shot on May 13th, which is the feast of Our Lady of Fatima. And he really believed Our Lady of Fatima saved his life. One of the reasons he believed she saved her life was to help get this teaching out there. 
I have a whole talk on the relationship between the prophecies in Fatima and the theology of the body and what's going on in the world. In fact, I wrote a little book about it as well. I forgot about that. It's called Eclipse of the Body, uh, How We Lost the Meaning of Marriage, Sex, and Gender, and How to Reclaim It. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. It's just a quick little read. If you want to understand the fuller answer to this question as to what's going on and why the JP2 Institute is under attack in Rome, I think you'll find your answer in that little book. But in short, Cardinal Kafara was put in charge of running the John Paul II Institute in Rome in the early 80s, and it was such a difficult struggle. He was under such spiritual attack mm. in just trying to get it up and running. He wrote to Sister Lucia, who was the only living visionary from Fatima, and asked for her prayers. And he did that because he knew John Paul II put it under the protection of Our Lady of Fatima. Sister Lucia wrote him back and said that the final battle between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan will be fought over marriage and the family. Mm. But there's no reason to be concerned because she's already crushed his head and the victory is already won. Cardinal Kafara received that reply in the early 80s or maybe mid 80s. But he didn't make it public until just a couple years ago, right before he died in 20, I believe 2017, he made that letter public. And he himself said he believed we are living through that final battle, which will be fought over marriage and the family. Final, what does that mean? What does the final battle mean? I don't know. I don't think he was predicting this is, you know, the end times or something like that. But he he was giving full credence to the prophecies made in Fatima and Our Lady of Fatima did promise in the end, after the church goes through many severe trials, in the end, my immaculate heart will triumph. Something I'd just like to share in response to you sharing all that is is that it can be uh, an unfamiliar thing to some Catholics to hear about a spiritual battle. Yeah. And it can kind of be frightening sometimes. Maybe we've seen sort of horror movies or representations of the darkness, which is a reality, but that maybe make it seem stronger than the light. And so, we hear something, well, there's a spiritual battle, that can kind of be overwhelming sometimes, that thought. So, I think it's good that you're bringing it up as you're talking about like, oh, you know, what's going on at the Institute, that you're seeing the connection to the deeper spiritual forces that are at play, there are also, you know, human forces and politics and other things. But I think your point in bringing it up is like taking a step back beyond the natural to see it kind of makes sense. Yeah, there's something bigger going on. And it does make sense in that context that the Institute remains under a lot of attack in that context. But you're right. It can be kind of scary if, if we give too much weight to the the, to the forces darkness. against right. against the truth. Yeah, I just wanted to share that, you know, even in my own life, there have been times when maybe an awareness of dark spiritual forces has caused me to experience fear or anxiety or feel overwhelmed. And I, I've also experienced graces where I felt like the Lord was letting me know, okay, you've glimpsed that, mm-hmm. but I don't forget that I'm the victor. You know, don't forget that you're in my hands. Preach it, sister. That, you know what? Don't even dwell upon it. Dwell upon my strength, my grace, my protection. And that that has helped me when I've heard things about 
kind of spiritual battles, I guess. Priest friend of ours, uh, Monsignor John, who's an exorcist, Mm -hmm. once said to me, we often give the enemy far too much strength in in the way we think about these things, just as you're bringing up. He said, the devil is a little gnat, a little mosquito, and here's spiritual warfare. There's the mosquito, and God just goes, smack, done, it's over. Mm. In, it, compared to the almighty power of God, right. he's an annoying mosquito, and he's already been squashed. Now, here's my little insight into that. We live, history is kind of that squash of the mosquito in slow motion. Mm. And it's like, wah, 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 splat. You know, that's the span of, of human history. Mm. But from God's perspective, done deal, the victory's already won. And we, we have full confidence. This is our faith. Full confidence. Christ came into the world to undo the work of the enemy. And yes, it's real. Spiritual battle is real. But the victory has already been won. Mm-hmm. And we are grafted into that victory. Mm-hmm. And we, we can learn how to align our hearts with that victory more and more and more. And I'll also share this, you know, lest we get, you know, fearful of spiritual battle and diabolical stuff. This exorcist also said, one sincere confession is worth more than a thousand exorcisms. So, confession is where we are aligning ourselves with God's will in our lives, and wherever we haven't, God's mercy is being applied, and we're getting put back in that alignment mm-hmm. with the victory. So, so do not fear. Uh, wherever you may have been not aligned with God's will for your life, go to confession. Trust in that. That's more powerful than than a thousand exorcisms. Mm. I wanted to put the the question in context. What do I think is going on at the JP2 Institute? A spiritual battle. Yes, you're right, Wendy. There's politics involved. There's human dynamics involved. But behind all that, we're not fighting flesh and blood, St. Paul says. We're fighting spiritual powers, principalities and powers. But we we have full assurance of victory. And St. Paul says we can put on the armor of God to fight these battles and win them. And I, I'll just add, point out, the first piece of armor St. Paul says to put on I think you know this one, Wendy. Mm-hmm. Gird your loins with the truth. Gird your loins with the truth. It's no mere coincidence that Ephesians chapter 6, talking about the spiritual battle, comes right after Paul talking about the meaning of the one flesh union in Ephesians chapter 5. So, long-winded answer to this question from Katie What I think is going on is the spiritual battle between good and evil is focused on marriage and the family, and JP2's teaching is a divine gift to help us win this battle, and there are forces at work, even within the church at some of the highest places that don't want John Paul II's teaching to get out there. Uh, None of this should be overly concerning. God allows these things. The victory is His. The darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. And even if it gets completely dark, never forget, the day Christ died, there was an eclipse of the sun. It was dark as dark could be right at the time you're expecting there to be light. Whenever it is as dark as dark can be, give it three days and wait for the victory. And it happens on Sunday, right? (laughs) Very good. Oh, uh, because we were talking about movies earlier. Oh, yeah? And just recently, we watched, in my TOB2 class, 
we watched a movie that talks about these themes of light and darkness. I'll just mention it. I am legend. Light up the darkness. Light up the darkness. If you want to see an allegory of the battle between good and evil and how the light wins and what's required of us to, to win the battle, watch this not as entertainment, but watch it as an allegory. I am legend with Will Smith. Oh, yeah. It's good. <laughs> Next question is from an anonymous wife. She asks, or says, My husband and I have been married for 30 years. Congratulations. Living our Catholicism as married persons is very important to us. Our marital relations have rarely been easy, but we keep trying because we love each other and want to honor our spousal relationship. Most recently, I've had some medical issues and surgery which have made having intercourse temporarily not possible. It has been over six months since we tried. We've gradually grown less affectionate because I don't want to unfairly arouse my husband. Sometimes I'm relieved, but then I feel guilty about that. Bless you, dear anonymous wife. I can hear your heart. I can hear the sincerity of your seeking. I hear the sincerity of your desire to love your husband. I hear the pain of 30 years of some some difficulties in the marriage bed. I hear your honest desire to learn how to love your husband. I hear your honest confession about sometimes it's easier just not to have to address these things. Bless you, bless Mm -hmm. you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. I have a few thoughts, but it's it might be one of those cliffhanger episodes, Wendy. Mm. It's interesting how, how many people reference that cliffhanger episode we had a couple <laughs> months ago or whenever it was, because I, I want to do justice to this question, and I think maybe it warrants coming back to it. But here are some just initial thoughts, which I do want to put out there for listeners now and for you, and then let's make a point to look at this again We'll do another cliffhanger episode and come back to it in our next episode. But dear wife, I would encourage you to hold out first in your mind and your heart the possibility that intimacy and affection does not need to lead to the consummate act of intercourse. And in married life, there are many occasions in married life when we are not able to come together in intercourse, maybe a health reason like you're explaining, maybe a practical reason, you know, you might be staying with relatives or something or, or whatever the case might be that would mean loving means foregoing the fullness of the marital embrace. That should never necessitate, therefore, we don't show affection. I think we can have a kind of mentality that we're kind of trained to think by the culture or maybe our upbringing that once you get that ball rolling, you know where this goes and you don't want to touch your husband because you know what he's going to want. And I understand that that mentality is real, but man, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying into it. And I want to hold out to everyone that we're not animals, that we have the ability to show affection to one another in ways that is tender and beautiful and bonding and intimate without it needing to lead to intercourse. And this has certainly been our experience in married life. We've had many occasions of, of even needing extended times of abstinence and, and learning to show tender affection to one another, knowing it's not going to lead to intercourse, has been an experience of real freedom and, and bonding in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 
Absolutely agree. And I think in the overall way, and I know we're going to talk more about this question, but an asking, Lord, what is your intention for this time in our marriage, you know, could be a very fruitful prayer to yes. align your hearts with what is God wanting to do with this time right now in your marriage. It's, you know, that's the fruitfulness for us of those times, I think, comes in part from that openness to what what does the Lord want to accomplish in us and through us in this time. Yeah, and I, I, I'll just hold out one final thought before we close and then revisit this question again in our next episode that my best guest in the answer to that question, what is this? What does the Lord want with this time? Mm. Is to draw you closer, mm-hmm. draw you closer, not to create barriers or distance, but to draw you more closely together in a genuine, free, sincere expression of, of marital closeness. Mm. So we'll, we'll leave it at that for now and we'll revisit it in our next episode. And I just want to invite everyone out there who is listening to this podcast, if it's a a gift to you and a service to you, hit that share button. Uh, Share this podcast with someone you think could benefit from hearing it. We would be very grateful. If you have anything you want to share with us in terms of how this podcast has benefited you, we would love to hear it. We also want to invite you to support the work of the Theology of the Body Institute. We need your prayers. We cannot do this work without prayer support. We need patrons who believe in what we're doing, who are willing to, to support us financially, $5 or $20 or $50 a month. And if you are willing to do that for us, we have some special exclusive offers that we give to our patrons in terms of community online and ongoing formation in the theology of the body. And you can click the link there in the show notes about becoming a patron to learn more. We'd be so grateful for your support. We want to enter into an ongoing relationship with you. We really want to be, uh, not just through this podcast, but many other in many other ways, we want to be a, a source for you and a place where you can turn to really embrace what John Paul II gave us for this critical moment in the church's history. Until our next episode, we just want to remind you, as we always do, you are an unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes. She saved his life. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the reasons he. But let me say this one more time. Okay, okay go ahead. <laughs> one of the reasons. He-